So we're up to the final session of the day where we're going to have a conversation with the Chair and CEO of Australian Retirement Trust. So if I could invite Don and Byrne to come and join me on stage. Firstly, can I um, begin with a very, very warm welcome. I think this is the first time that the two of you have sat down together on a stage like this to share some of your reflections and insights with the industry about what it is that brought QSuper and SunSuper together to create Australian Retirement Trust. It's true. Um, I feel very privileged to be here. I know our chair, Colin Tate, was really looking forward to sitting down and having this conversation with you both. And it's a privilege that I got to step into uh, to his place at the last minute. Don, 21 years ago, I came to work for Fund Executives Association at that time you were on the board, uh, about a dozen or so fund chief executives that I reported to. And at the time, you, I think, were the CEO of SunSuper. And I observed at that time someone who was deeply respected by their peers. I observed in you someone who would always make themselves available to share their experience and their knowledge with the industry. And notwithstanding competitive pressures and notwithstanding significant demands on your time, even back then, you would be available always. Um, that shaped and informed my career and is a hallmark of one of the things that I think makes our industry and has always made our industry okay. very, very unique. Um, this willingness to share openly with a genuine aligned concern and effort to generate better outcomes for members, to save others reinventing the wheel, to save others learning lessons again. Um, you shared that knowledge willingly. And it's no surprise to me that you've traveled down here to be with us in person today for this conversation. And I wanna thank you and acknowledge the huge impact you've had on this industry through your example. Yes. And Bern, there's plenty of other places you could choose to be as well, but you're up here in the Blue Mountains with us and, and thank you for, for, for being part of it. Back on the 2nd of March this year, Chanticleer announced to the industry under the headline, six mega funds will tower over super. The statement a mega super fund was born this week when Q Super and Sun Super became the 207 billion, I think it's actually closer to 230 now, Australian Retirement Trust. It's a taste of things to come as as consolidation creates more super giants. Don, you're the chair of this fund. I think it's well recognised that neither QSuper nor SunSuper needed to merge to create this one fund, but can you talk to us about why that happened? It was a two-year journey. You presided over much of that integration. Take us back. Tell us the story. How was this fund created? I will. Before I do that, I want to thank you for your generous openings and, and I want to build on what you said. Mm. I, I actually think this industry is incredible in the way people cooperate, in the way people work together. And I think the way we all work together to really do one thing, and it is to improve the member outcomes, not just in our funds, but across the nation. And I think we've been incredibly... I'll use a very old-fashioned word, blessed, to be able to work together in a very high trust, um, some people call it co-opetition, I think, mm. um, way of working that has done something very special for the nation. 
I think in, in relation, and I, I will pass uh, to Bern on this and we'll tend to share uh, questions, I think, rather than, than, than take them all, is that the two funds were um, proactive funds, they were successful funds. Um, I think they were ranked around about three-ish in, in assets under management. I think some was sort of ranked in the top two or three in, in, Member. in members. Member. Q a lot smaller because it's fundamentally uh, in, in the past been the fund for the government. I think that's what it basically was and, and for friends and family and people stayed on. And then from 2017, it did a little bit to expand uh, as, as a, a, a more national fund, but, but that was pretty much in its infancy. Um, so why come together? Um, I, will, I will go back in very ancient history um, and say that in 2000 and 2001, there was very detailed discussions about joining then and also joining with something called QIC, which uh, I know Sonia down here has a little bit to do with in the past. Uh, so it was an idea floated once before but didn't get up. Um, and it's an idea that was floated this time and it did. The really interesting thing for me was coming in on that and learning, very much learning, about QSuper at that stage and, and who QSuper was and, and, and what it did, knowing a little bit, but not as much as this man, about, about SunSuper. And uh, I think, first of all, we sat down and did quite detailed analysis, built business cases, et cetera, et cetera, and, and they, without question, showed that this was a very good idea. And I must admit, as we've gone down the path over the last three years now, two, almost three years, uh, the confidence that it was a good idea has escalated. It's never receded. So one of the reasons it's happened is because it is a good idea for these particular funds. So I don't, I don't think we are wise enough, he might be, but I'm not, to say that mergers therefore are good and should always happen. Oh, I, just, I just don't think that's necessarily true. I think you have to look at why would these two funds come together and why would they not? Um, and one of the reasons it's a good idea is it could happen. And, and there was a generosity of spirit. And the generosity of spirit, I think, in life matters enormously. But there was a generosity of spirit from the directors because some of them had to say they would no longer be directors. There was enormous generosity of spirit between the two CEOs. There was a little bit of fortune in that, I think, in the, in the sense that um, Michael Panisi, and I always pay Michael a great tribute in this, is that he had already decided that he wanted to, at the end of his five-year term, move somewhere else. But he stayed on for another close to 18 months to, to ensure that everything was bedded down. And we had a, a, a CEO in Sunsuper who was, I thought then, quite capable, I now know extremely, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and good culture within the entities. And then we had stakeholders, um, the unions, the Queensland Government, the Queensland Chamber of Commerce and Industry, who 
were no pushovers. They took a little bit of convincing, but they were open. And so we had a very open, transparent discussion that could focus on what do these two funds have in common? Why would it benefit for them to join? And why would it benefit them not to join? Now, we employed every consultant in Australia for, for quite a long time. And the, the, one, thing, the one thing that I, that I think is quite humorous is that it did take us probably about three months to really do the, the proper part of the business case and work out this should, this should happen. It then took us the next close to two years to actually make it happen, which says something. Um, so uh, I think it is about generosity of spirit. I think it's absolutely focusing on what we had together. And what we had together is just common in so many funds that you people know and that sit in this room. And it's what characterises and makes this sector cooperative and so special. We actually do care about our members. We actually want the best thing for them. And this idea of best financial interest matters to us with a passion. And we will walk over nails for it. And so I think, I think that's what helped bring us together. I'd add, um, you're right, you talk about Michael and, and your role. I'd add Andrew Fraser from SunSuper, who was chair of SunSuper at the time, because I think the, it required, um, we need to bring both sides of the house along in the journey. And it did take us almost three years. When I, so I joined SunSuper now just, just about three years ago and coming in to uh, the job, um, Andrew Fraser said to me, oh, you know, there's regu regulatory change, you know, there's a government who's sort of maybe not a great supporter of industry-based uh, super funds. Oh, and by the way, there's potentially a big merger on the table. So I came in knowing that. Um, and part of it was about, for me, did it make sense for the Sun Super members? Um, and why then would we come together and how would we then come together? So we spent a lot of time going through that. Um, I think we had a lot of, there's a lot of hard decisions along the way. We had a lot of laughs along the way, I think as well. Um, and most of that was done on Microsoft Teams because I live in Sydney, Don's in Brisbane, a number of the border in Brisbane. We've got board members in Sydney, board members in Melbourne. Our chief advisor, which was EY at the time, the two partners at EY were in Melbourne. So we, most of what we did was on, um, Microsoft Teams. I think we got used to seeing one another's studies uh, or wherever we were sitting at the time over a number of different discussions. The other part of I think that it is um, important to recognise, as we've said, is it's, it was a merger of equals. And so that required us to build consensus along the way on a lot of number of the key decisions. Someone made a comment earlier in the earlier forum around, um, um, David, you kind of mentioned, I think, around sort of two different investment philosophies. We spent a lot of time talking about investment philosophy for ART or art. And it, actually, there is one investment philosophy. Um, there is two, um, I think, product philosophies that we have that we need to work out what we do with going forward. But there was one, there's one investment philosophy that the organisation has. So we made some key decisions along the way. And interestingly, I think, because you'd sit here now and think, <coughs> four months in, what have you been doing? Um, Part of, we were constrained in how fast we could move, even though we were taking almost three years to get here, because of the regulatory environment. So, for example, we weren't able to, the, the investment teams weren't able to look over one another's shoulders until the beginning of March because of the ACCC, because we needed to run two funds right to the death. So um, that just slows down the process around how you can integrate 
you can do a whole lot of planning, but how you can actually integrate, start integrating um, until, until sort of day one. So, Bern, $230 billion in assets under management, I think approximately, approximately 2,000 staff now, approximately 2 million members around the country. You had a leadership challenge to bring and lead this merger during a global pandemic where both workforces from the two separate funds were working remotely. But the challenge was only just about to begin, I understand, because on the 28th of February, if we cast our minds back, um, you had a really unique challenge. Having worked for Aware Super, uh, running communications and corporate affairs during a couple of big mergers, I know how frenetic things can get at the last minute. And at the last minute, Northern New South Wales and Queensland was going underwater. On the 28th of Feb, yes. there were power outages. Not only were your staff working remotely, they were in fear of their homes going underwater. They were losing internet connection. You were integrating these two funds on one weekend. A war had just broken out in Ukraine. Global markets were in freefall. Begin to talk us through that leadership challenge that you faced at that point. Yeah, Michael, good, uh, nice way to set it up. Thank you. Make it sound like it was, make it sound like it was a real challenge. Um, yeah, we just we didn't have a plague. I think that was the only thing we didn't have. Um, it, you're right. I mean, one of the things that we'd spent a lot of time, uh, I had a team of 300 people who were focused on um, integration and day one. And day one was really important to me personally, to the board and to others because, um, and day one may not have been on the 28th of February. Day one could be today for some of our members who have their first interaction with us as art, our Australian Retirement Trust. Um, and, it, and for them, in my mind, for members, that first interaction with you will determine whether I think the merger was a success or not. So if, if the internet's down uh, or the app's down, if they can't get uh, through on the contact centre, all those sorts of things, if those things don't work for members, then, they, well, then, then it means the merger's not a success in their eyes. There's a whole lot of other stuff happens, but that's the way that members, I think, in, in, a, in its base sort of level, think about it. So we spent a lot of time planning what was going to happen on that weekend. And we had moved the merger date... Um, prior to that because of a couple other issues not related to, to um, integration but more regulatory type issues for us. So we land on that date, we were not going to change. Uh, I remember talking to Steve Davidson, one of my colleagues who was running the program for us on the Thursday and you'll remember Ukraine had, had started already at that point and I said, okay, so we've, we've staffed up the contact centre, we're all ready to go for Monday. Uh, had we planned on a war in Ukraine? No. So we thought, well, okay, that's going to add to the challenge. Um, we hadn't, um, I don't think, forecast that all three of our Brisbane offices were going to be underwater or, or out of action, which they all were. Um, and so we had, it was quite a, the weekend was quite a, uh, a hands-on weekend for the executive team. And don't forget, I had put a, made decisions with the board around an executive team um, to start on that day. So they had their day jobs, whether it would be with Sun Super or Q Super, up until that day, and then they came in um, running their own sort of division on that day. So it was, there was a, a bit of messiness around who had um, responsibility for different things as we went through it, um, and that was where the integration uh, team really, I think, came into their own. Um, we had stories of um, people who were, especially the IT side, because we were very, very IT-heavy on that weekend. And one of the things, the first things I did when I looked... Uh, after midnight to see whether the app changed from the Sun Super app to the Art app, and it did. I was like, okay, that's 
one step that worked. Um, we had people who were working all weekend. We had people who were handing over, as you said, Michael, jobs from one colleague to another because their house was going under. Or, or we had people going to Bunnings to get generators because they were going out of power. We had people go to public libraries because their internet was not, wasn't working at home. And I said to the team at the time, to the entire organisation at the time, I'm not sure whether in any other industry you would have got people to do that. Mm. Uh, I think if it was the, you know, if you're a retailer, I'm like, oh, well, sorry, can't do that, you know. And I think people went over, uh, above and beyond so that day one could be good for our members. Um, and there was a lot of cleanup afterwards. Um, but we also did what we could for our team who were impacted as well because people, people had their houses underwater. It's, it's an amazing story, I think, about the resilience, the passion and the determination of people that work. And I think, again, it's, it's not just us. It's, it's so many people in, in here for a purpose. Uh, and, it, and it just shows you why working in a sector that has a purpose, has a clear purpose, people move heaven and earth to do things. Um, and the level of commitment by people over the last two years, I'm sure it's happened elsewhere, but it has to be seen to be believed. And we're forcing people to take lead. We're forcing people to just take a step back, model that you need a balanced life and, and work through because people kept giving, giving, giving. Um, and you know, as part of us were forcing that and, and I think we all, we all bore that uh, and, and worked through it. So it was, it was exceptional, but it's also incredibly heartening as you look and you reflect and, and you reflect in the labours of others. Don, when I spoke with um, Ian Patrick a, a month or so back around the investment philosophy and approach of the fund, we quickly got to talking about where the fund is headed and, and this sort of growth trajectory to 500 billion. Where is the timeline at what is the trajectory to be a $500 billion fund? And where do you see yourself at a global stage with your global peers uh, as, as institutional investors? I'll let him answer most of this, but I'll, I'll make a couple of comments. It, 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 talking of Ian, um, I, I think on reflection, well, some, some of the impediments that we thought were going to be, some of the things we thought there's almost going to be blood in the streets and it's going to be incredibly difficult to bring two organisations together. One was about those investment uh, philosophies and, mm. and so we, we were uh, extremely concerned about that. Uh, and it, it was one of the ones that, that everyone said, this is going to be a disaster. But it wasn't. Um, the team came together incredibly well. Now, we've got people of the quality of Andrew down there, so you, you've, you've heard from him. So I'm very nervous when I talk about investments when I'm sitting up here because I know, I know he'll be able to uh, tell me where I got it wrong. But, but the way in which the teams came together was quite phenomenal. And I must admit, and I'm not trying to be clever on this, it didn't ever worry me. Uh, and the reason it didn't worry me is, again, if you focus on members and you work through your investment philosophies, Yes, there'll be slightly different points of view. There'll be slightly different points of view on, on alpha and where you can get it and where you can't get it. There'll be slightly different points of view on different styles of portfolio construction, etc. But the thrust of what you're doing is grounded in research and theory. Therefore, you'll come to places 
that that really work. Now, when it comes to me to estimate where we're going to be at a certain date with sizes, I'm not very good at that sort of stuff. Um, what I have found out, and, and it surprised me, is that the Australian system is so strong um, that for people like us, Australian super and others, we, we sit and they're bigger than us, as they should be. Um, so, but we sit around 20th, 21, 22 in the world. Um, and, and, and that surprises me, and, but, but it shouldn't, should it? Because we all know that the system we have here has just put a pool of capital together. That's the fourth largest pool of capital on the planet uh, in superannuation for a country that's what, 13, 14, 15, 16 in GDP, however you happen to measure it. So he'll be better at telling you, it's probably six or seven years, but he'll be better at telling you. So the, the $500 billion number, where that came from, so that came because I, I mentioned it. That was the problem, I think. Um, <laughs> when we did our business case, we, we put down some numbers around where we thought the size of the fund could get to over a certain period of time. We looked at a whole variety of different scenarios. We thought about what happens if markets fall out of bed, um, a whole, what happens if we see... Uh, uh, a big dislocation in um, the economy. We did a whole lot of different things and to make sure that it made sense that in under any of those scenarios, it's still made from a member's best financial interest perspective, made sense to come together. And in those numbers, if you look at the base case, it suggests that we'll get to uh, that number uh, at or around um, the end of the decade. And with around 2.8 million members, there's also, I think, the important part to note. And so today we sit, we're actually just under 2.1 million members today. So we've seen an increase in membership um, since we came together. Um, so that's, yeah, so, I, so then I've been quoted about the 500, so everyone's going on about the 500. It really wasn't about that. Um, this is about really making sure um, that I think we continue to do a good job for our members. We will grow if we do a good job for our members because we'll continue to attract um, new members, whether they be corporates like you, uh, Australia Post or uh, Woolworths, um, or whether they be individual members who make that choice. And so to your point, Scott, when you were talking about the performance test uh, and the impact on those 13 funds, last year, I mentioned this publicly, we saw in the three months after the performance test, we saw a 12 months worth of membership flows from those, from those 13 funds who underperformed. And so members, while they may broadly um, be disengaged. Um, I think our, mem our membership base is a little bit more engaged because we've been communicating with them about a merger. But I think more, more sort of broadly around performance tests, I think you'll see that activity. But it does seem to have a hump and die pretty quickly. Bern, can I pick, pick up on a, on a point you just made then? You made reference to Australia Post and Woolworths. Two, two examples. Two examples, but two funds that you bought, as I understand it, into the fund at the point that you're actually still merging, am I correct? So Aussie Post, yes, uh, Woolworths hasn't come in. So Woolworths, they've announced and Woolworths will come in in the next nine or 12 months okay. this year, next 12 months. So talk us through that as a process in complexity, not only bringing together QSuper and SunSuper, bringing in another fund, setting up to bring in one of the largest corporate yeah, Michael, in, good in the country. Question. Um, and so we were, we we were, we were managing both um, potentially coming in at around the same time. One of the things that um, we had been really transparent with the the Australia Post team, um, who are a great group of people, with the board and with the executive team, was how the 
merger was progressing. So along the way, we had all, all actually from probably 12 months out, we had a number of discussions with the post team around how things were going. For example, they needed to know the new name because they needed to be able to go out with a send to their members. So we needed to be able to give them an early sense of what the new name um, was going to be and the logo and, and the colour so they could do something with that. So it required us to take them into our confidence and work through it and, they, and, and we had a really high degree of trust across the teams. One of the things that we come to the merger with is um, um, multiples of things. So we have two, in, two uh, admin platforms. So if anyone would like an admin platform, <laughs> I'll be at the back of the room later in the day. Um, and we have two admin platforms. And so it actually made, to be honest, the Australia Post, the team, and Andrew, if you repeat this, I'm going to kill you. The team, it made it easier than otherwise would have been because we had two platforms so we could go onto one. So the Australia Post um, fund went onto one of our existing platforms. So as we uh, integrate that, that'll, that will change over time. But uh, it made it actually easier. But it was the communications and then also so taking the post board through. We had a number of discussions with them about how we were going and where we were going so they could be comfortable to be able to recommend it. I mean, we had one other little thing that in the, um, the heads of agreement, if there was a large take on in business, there had to be a convincing of the other side that it wasn't a distraction from the merger. That's true. And therefore, we, and therefore, we shouldn't close it off. So, so Bern gave me a call and said, this is all happening. So he's like, mm, okay, so how are, you, how are you going to manage this? How's it going to do with resources? What's the payback period? Et cetera, et cetera. It's probably one so of our first was, engagements. It was, really, it was good. Chair and CEO. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about philosophy and, and the investment approach. At a point where many of the largest funds are internalising a lot of investment expertise, your fund has strategically made a decision not to, that, to do that, but to maintain a hybrid approach, internalising some but continuing with a solid case to outsource <coughs> other aspects of the investment portfolio. Can you talk us through the rationale and reasoning for that? Well, it was one of the things where there was commonality. Uh, so both teams from Heritage Q and Heritage Sun, both did some insourcing, uh, but the default position was to outsource to global best practice managers. Uh, and so it wasn't particularly difficult. Uh, therefore, as we came together to continue to do what we'd already done and what, what we'd always done. I think the rationale for that is interesting. Um, from a personal point of view, and I'm certainly not talking against those who over time have decided to internalise, I think the default position is reasonably natural that if you don't have an internal team, it's more, you're more likely to be able to find a world-class external team than to create an internal team um, and to do that quickly. So I would have thought internalising is quite a strategic change and needs to be thought through very deeply and very well. And you need to test who you can recruit, how you're going to do it, what systems you've got, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other thing is, is that we also had to work out in that discussion whether we were believers in active management or passive management uh, in, in working that through as well. And, and I think, strangely enough, um, that... Again, a, a lot of people just looking at it would say, well, on the Q side, they, they would more likely be more passive and on the Sun side, they would likely be more active. But again, there's a lot more commonality in, in the idea of where alpha can be gained and, and, and active management. And so, but from both funds' point of view, 
they believe in the unlisted markets, that's not a bad way to spend your active dollars. Um, and so engaging in the unlisted markets with, with active management is, is, again, two of the core characteristics of, of the funds. So, Ben, I'll... Yeah, I'd add uh, to that. One of the challenges once we agreed we were, we were going to merge was I, I handed to Ian Patrick. I said, Ian, OK, so what does a $500 billion um, investor look like? So from, a, from an art perspective, what are we going to look like? And so... Um, I, I'd say some of it's not resolved. Well, actually, a lot of it's not resolved. And we've got an external um, a consultant helping us starting now. Because um, I've gone to the... We went to the board... Um, so both both funds had their own strategy, right, as in business strategy, not investment strategy. They both had that as well, but but their, their own business strategy. And so that continues to run. We had a discussion with the board in March, the second week after we'd merged. Um, and we actually, which is really interesting because that was the first time we had all the executives and the board together in the one room at the one time because of COVID and the like. That was actually really quite an interesting sort of a social science to see people come together. Um, that's another for another day. But um, so what we're doing in October is, again, we've got another round with the board and part of that is also bringing together the broader enterprise strategy, so not just the business strategy. And part of that is the investment piece. And so we're doing some work with Ashby Monk from Stanford just to think about forward-looking to say where do, where do we want to be when we're at 500? Now, that's just a number, an arbitrary number you could pick out, right? But that's, that's we picked it out. Um, what does the investment team look like? Um, what does the skills required, that, what do we need to build for that? because we need to start building for that now, knowing that we're going to get there at some point in time in the future. And so that's the bit of work that's going on there. Um, I have, like all of us, have my own biases about um, what you should internalise and what you shouldn't. Um, and I've gone to discussions with others about that, interesting discussions. Um, and I, or the, the lens I look at is what's the competitive, what's our competitive advantage? Mm. And so I, Ian Patrick's heard me say this, God, probably 100 times, but what's the competitive advantage for art to be the 123rd active Aussie equity manager. Uh, I struggle with that a bit, but, uh, and maybe it's just because I'm not smart enough. But I, I, I do think that you need to think about it through that lens from the member perspective, what's in it, in, in it from the member's best interest perspective. And all we focused on is returns after all fees and costs. That's what we've got to focus on. Byrne, can you talk us through some of the investment opportunities you're looking for into the future? We've seen investments in Sydney Airport and in Osnet. I'm interested in your kind of the approach to sustainable investing in universal ownership in long-term partnership and climate change. Like it or not, as such a large visible fund, people will be looking to you. Big target. Big target, but also looking to you as an example. So there's yeah. an opportunity to influence and encourage others to follow. What's the future of investing with so Australian Retirement There's trust? a lot in that. So if I, let me unpack some of that. Yeah. Um, if I think about the sort, of, the sort of investing that we'll do going forward, it will change from what we do today, but maybe not that much. And I think you're able to write a bigger cheque. I actually think what we're able to do is to harness the resources and make a decision faster than we otherwise would have. Because the other part to the to the story here is the 230 odd billion, the 2 million members, it's also the positive cash flow. So we'll take in, um, you know, between 10 and $15 billion in uh, net flow a year at the moment. Now that may change over time, but that's at the moment. And so we need to put that money to work. Um, you know, the team does, that's, you know, why Andrew's got, well, got grey hair. We need to put the money to work um, 
you know, obviously uh, as quickly as we can on that regard. Um, and so thinking about from the private market side, those longer term investments, investing in a different way. So co-investing, someone was talking about earlier, uh, is something that clearly is an area that we'll build more capability and skill in. And that'll be something that we're already doing today, we'll do more of. Um, because when I'm investing and we're investing in a in a, a fund investment and that gets liquidated after a 10, seven to 10 year period, it creates the, makes a, a greater problem because we're gonna reinvest that money and recycle, um, recycle that. So that's part of it. I think when we think about um, the listed market space, um, you know, I think we, we will continue as we are at the moment, we'll continue down the path um, that, that Andrew, uh, I think, outlined earlier um, in, in how we invest, uh, I think. Um, and I, one of the things I did just recently, I was on a trip with Charles Woodhouse, who's our deputy CEO, um, and I went and met with some of our investment partners. And I asked them the question about what makes a good partner, because I can tell you what I think makes a good partner for us, but I'm interested in what make, means a good partner for them, because we will have deeper partnerships with others. And it's not just actually in the investment space. It's across all different um, parts of the value chain of what we do. Um, so that it's something, it's good for us, good for our members and good for the organisation. Um, but there'll be, you know, because we're at 230, we're not going to have more relationships. God help us. I think, you know, we've got enough, right? So it's going to have to be something that is uh, more targeted, I think, on the way. The second point, I think, was about... Um, Sustainable, well, climate, mm. sustainable investing. Yeah, sustainable investing. Yeah, and again, Andrew made the comment around the fact that we have a, a climate action plan uh, already, and it's something that both organisations worked on um, coming together. Uh, and I think it's something that um, you're right, as a large investor, I'd say as all of us in the room, we have an obligation. And so holding up to that obligation, I think, is uh, incredibly important. And it is part of the broader investment problem. While we may have a sustainable, socially, socially responsible option, it impacts every investment that we make. And so that's the way um, that, that we look at it. Um, and so being really clear about that, um, I think with the, the investment team are clear about it, being clear with the investment committee, being clear with their members, I think is, is equally important. What's funny though, or is, is challenging is, as an aside, Michael, is the, the old Sun Super, Ian Patrick and I did a member meeting in Brisbane in, before COVID kind of hit in oh, actually early 2020. And so if you think, put yourself in that position, bushfires, um, we didn't have the floods at that point, but bushfires, we thought, geez, we're gonna get, um, there are gonna be protesters out the front, we're in the, in the Brisbane Convention Centre, there are gonna be protesters out the front here who are gonna be harassing us. Um, they weren't. But what was really interesting was when we talked about our um, sustainable and climate credentials, you could hear an audible groan in the audience from members who were 60 plus. And David, I'm not picking on you. I know you weren't there, but um, um, there was that. And, and what was interesting, if you talk to them afterwards, is also it's about the fact that um, they they may have family who work in mining um, or in related industries or other. So it, we need to also be thinking about the just transition. It can't just be um, exclusion and and, um, not, and and climate and the like. And the other part of I think we all need to um, acknowledge or admit to is that it is not a straight line from where we are today to where we get to in 2050 or 2030 or 2040 is not a straight line. And I actually think society and members think it is a straight line and it's not. Mm. And so I feel like we need to be honest about that as well. There were two parts of your question. I can't remember the third part. Was there another part? Did yeah, I and look, we can, we can pick this up toward the end, but 
whether you like it or not, oh, you're, you're a big advocacy. target, yep. but it's an opportunity yes. to lead. Most definitely. And so one of the things that I've been doing with the team is really building up what are the areas that we want to have a voice in. And we're going to have a voice, but we're also, the first part of what we do is similar to the way we engage with companies. It's going to be an engagement with stakeholders and, and government. And largely, we're going to start that um, you know, behind closed doors. It's not going to be on the front page of the fin. Uh, that's, maybe it makes me feel more comfortable doing it that way, but I also think uh, you're likely to have better engagement um, with stakeholders in doing it that way. And so that's the way we've done some of that already um, and we'll continue to do it down that path. But where we need to lend our voice um, more vocally, we definitely will do that. So, so both, both funds have made giant strides um, in the last few years in decarbonising and actually implementing the whole climate change throughout the entity, not just in the SRI. And, and it, it has been embraced and taken on board by all. Uh, and, and that has to be done throughout the organisation. It has to be done at the board. It must be done at the investment team, but it must also be done right deep down through the organisation. And, and so I think that's been done. I also think, um, and you mentioned the word partnership before, I, I still think, and I'm not saying this because there's a lot of investment partners in the room, I still think the partnership is the most underdone thing on the planet um, when it comes to organisations like us who aggregate capital and need that capital to be incredibly well invested. And I think good partners think together, good partners create together and find new types of solutions. So when you are talking before about what are we going to do, I think we need to be incredibly innovative in how we invest members' money. And I suspect it won't be just the same as what it was in the past. It's never different this time, but it's never quite the same this time either, is it? And so it's creating opportunities in unlisted spaces and listed spaces. I think we need to go well beyond climate change. And I think we need to get to the social, and do we have Hester uh, here and Aware and others who, who have led in this space, as many other funds have. Um, we, we haven't been amongst those leaders and we need to be. And we need to find the solutions that have impact. We need to solve problems with the government. We need to solve problems with, with uh, our investment manager partners. I think we need to solve problems together for our community and our society, never, ever, ever compromising our fiduciary duty and ensuring that we create wonderful outcomes for our members. But I think if we're creative, we'll do that even better and we'll do positive things for our society. But we must lead there because our members, our members were at 40 on average. average. Um, many others rest, Andrew was talking before, are even younger. They're emerging into a world that needs to be vibrant. They don't just need money, they need life. Uh, and it's up to us to create and do that, but not ideologically to their detriment rather creatively and cleverly to their benefit twice. That's what I think. Now feels like it's the time with government. Um, I think we, we have a great stakeholder with the Queensland government, but now is also time, I think, with the federal government, with the change of government, to be able to have those discussions about problem solving that um, I think was harder mm. a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to be coming to tables for questions in a couple of minutes, so please give some thought now to the questions you want to put to Don and, and to Byrne as well. 
Don, there's a strong belief that one of the challenges ahead of us is to transition as an industry from being a great accumulation system to genuinely being a great retirement system, that it's only then that we'll evolve to be all that we can be and really have impact for the nation. So turning to retirement solutions at Australian Retirement Fund and the Retirement Income Covenant in particular, QSuper is well known as having had quite a well-developed retirement product and having had that in place for some time. Has art, will art make changes to that in light of the Retirement Income Covenant and the merger? Yes. Um, th first of all, that, that product becomes available to, to everyone on the books. Um, on, on both sides. It, it, it's really hard for us um, to use terminology looking back. I, I must admit, what, what we're trying to do in the entity is not to use terminology looking back, not to talk about Heritage Q, not to talk about Heritage Sun mm. and those sort of things, but rather talk about Australian Retirement Trust. What are we going to do? Um, and we love the word retirement in the name. In fact, it's, it's probably the, the central thing. It is central, but it is one of the central things that, that we really liked about that name. And why we like it is people go into retirement. They go into income. We as a sector, we talk about time-weighted returns. That means almost nothing to members. It's money-weighted returns. It, what we need to produce for people is not capital for them to use in retirement because most people have no idea what to do with capital. Um, they've lived their whole life earning income. They want income in retirement. So it's up to us to, to produce that income. The other tragedy is, as we all know, is so many people get to retirement, and I should know, I should be there, um, is that they don't spend. They keep it and they guard it rather than living a full life. They live a poorer life because they're scared to go out there and do it. So the, the retirement income policy we brought out 18 months ago or so, and I must admit, um, as part of the board, I interrogated that to say, why will it be successful? Australians hate annuities, they'll never invest. Why will they invest in it, et cetera? But it is a pool-type product that's a best efforts-type product that when people, and, and it's got an insurance element to it, so people at least get back uh, their money. Um, and then it's a best of efforts to ensure that there's always an income stream through to their end of their life. Uh, but it can adjust the income stream. You can't have everything without capital backing it and it's not capital backed in that way. But it's a relatively clever product. We stole the idea from the University of Columbia and things like that, but nevertheless, uh, it, it has a lot going for it. And at least gives people certainty of using, of having an income and for them to depend on that income rather than hoarding. So I think it, it builds, an attitude of, rather than scarcity, more one of a bit of abundance and life in working it through. So it will become, mm. and Burns working on this and structuring the team around this, to have the head of retirement and finding retirement solutions as being the essence of what we do. And, and to do that is the whole area that taps into that is researching who your people are, who, how do you slice and dice, we both traditionally used 
lifetime. We, we do believe that risks change through life, but you just don't want to de-risk things and put people in cash near retirement. So it's working through those sort of things, the guidance, the education, understanding what people want the money for as they get to retirement and working through that. But we think that has to be pivotal and where we will spend a lot of our time, money and effort on those sort of things, but also the systems that will support it. So two things. Firstly, I've retired once and it's overrated, so don't do it. Um, <laughs> I've done it twice. <laughs> the, second, uh, the, the second part is that, that um, uh, when you think about innovation, you never get it all right the first time. And so the team, because we, we, when, when it was, the Sun Super part of the house had to actually approve the product for QSuper before it was launched because we were at that stage of the merger. And I know when the, the Sun team looked at it, they thought, this is pretty cool. This is good. And we had a small number of members, not as large as the Q side at the time, who this would be relevant for. So it was a great opportunity for us to be able to think, yeah, okay, that's a, that was a real advantage in the merger from day one for us to be able to offer it to our older members um, going forward. So again, I, th I think a good thing. I think the fact that it works with social security is a good thing as well. And so you know that people are, um, uh, they're, they're intertwined and the fact that it has that, I think actually allows or gives comfort to, to people in retirement around what the, the cash flow looks like. So that makes a big difference. Um, and you're right, uh, Don, um, retirement, you know, I think the industry for us, when we think about it without our members now who are at or near retirement, that focus has to be there. And so we have a role that I've yet to fill down, which is an EGM of retirement, which is gonna cut across our entire organisation. And so rather than someone who's siloed, I want someone to be able to cut across. So whether that be how we communicate with members out on year retirement or about retirement, uh, interacting clearly with the investment team and challenging them on that, uh, whether it be, um, you know, we think about from the legal and from the, the governance perspective, you name it across our product, across our entire organisation. So I haven't filled, I'm yet to, it's on my to-do list. It's been a busy couple of months. <laughs> Let's take a moment for questions from the floor. When you ask a question, please press the button on your microphone. Introduce yourself and the organisation that you're here representing today. Table 11 at the back. Oh, hi, Don. Mark Burgess from Hester. Congratulations on the merger. It's really world class. Um, I am struck, though, if you read analysis of mergers, there's a lot of work that's been done, as I'm sure you've looked at, which suggests that one culture should win or one group should win in a merger for it to be efficient. And I know you're committed to the two. Um, and I did, I did meet someone from your team the other day who I thought was absolutely A-grade, but introduced themselves as Legacy A as opposed to Legacy B. And I, I know you're very committed to making it come together. And I think that's one of the keys. Could you give us a sense for what you're doing to make one culture and break the back of that I'm Legacy A, Legacy B issue that so many mergers have over a long period of time? Okay. Mark, can you give me that name okay. at the end? Okay. I, I, I was a very good person. I might try and steal them. I, so watch out. <laughs> I, I, ca I carry a couple of things with me, Mark, ar ar around because I'm not very good at remembering things these days. And, and one of them is, is, is the cultural thing. Well, one of the th and, and we all know Drucker, don't we? Uh, the uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast sort of thing. So, so one of the things that we've been really slow at but really detailed at is culture. And so we've had all these culture jams and allow the culture to well up, so much so that we've had culture workshops with the board, with the NOMS and, 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 and REM committee, with the executive. We've all met together 
and there's a criticism, and you know, Andrew might have this criticism, is that we are just ever so slow at making it happen. But it's the one thing we've spent miles more time on every, than anything else. You would have thought you'd spend a lot more time on investment philosophy and principles, but they happen quickly. The cultural evolution is really, really slow, but it's really in depth and through all these culture jams, which everyone comes together, express their views. So it's filtered up and down through the organisation two or three times already and it continues to evolve. And, and so we use language that's a bit foreign to me, I have to say, like striving to serve, I get. But stepping out, stepping forward is probably not me. Uh, seeking brave new ways, stronger together, spirited and caring. But one of the things is, is what I love about it is the deep humanity of it. Um, and so you know, members at the heart of everything we do is there. We genuinely care for people. And these words weld up from within. Now, part of them were from the heritage organisations, but they're new. Uh, and so uh, I think those things matter, that there's a lot of trust in it, there's a lot of inclusion, diversity, there's a, we care, that it finishes, we care for each other, we all matter. Now, those of you that know me, and not many of you do, but some do, will know that I think organisations are about heart. Organisations need to be clever, but we need to be people first. And our biggest thrust is first of all to our members. So we've been looking at scorecards and all that sort of stuff. Members sits there number one. It's investment outcomes, it's adequacy, it's what they think of us. Number two is our people because they deliver to the members. They can never be number one because that's just reversed. But We've spent just enormous amounts of time, and we've been very blessed. I, sh I shouldn't say who the consultant is, but we have been very blessed with a very good consultant, I think, on this, who's really, and, and I remember giving her a hard time when she first came in um, and being a little cynical, but I've been reprimanded greatly <laughs> because I think um, they've brought it together really, really well. But we've got a long way to go. So we just did a, a cultural a survey, amp, yeah. a culture amp, in the last few weeks, which was challenging. Um, and I think on culture, I think we got about 70-odd percent of people quite liked it. There's a lot of fence-sitters, uh, and then there's 5 or 10 percent who have found it a bit negative. So, so it's been really interesting in working that. But, Mark, I think it's a, a great question. So, Mark, I might add, um, so if you think about all of the mergers in the industry to date, there's only one true merger, and that is the merger we've done. The rest has been a takeover. So one culture will win out over another. And so when I was appointed the CEO and you would hear from the Q side of the house, oh my gosh, this is a takeover by Sunsuper. And then when there were, there were different things happening along the way, oh my gosh, this is a takeover by Q Super. And I'm like, enough, stop it. Um, but what I, what, one of the things in, in the, the signals to the organisation are really important. So the work that Don's talking about, we actually started that in um, June last year and we engaged a consultant, we started really deeply thinking about what we wanted the culture to be as opposed to, and, and you know what happens, people determine the culture, the team determine the culture, right? And so we're giving them, so some of these are behaviours that we're really identifying to the team that we um, want to see um, and really outlining what it means uh, to be part of, uh, of art. Um, 
The other part also for me was about um, in setting up the executive team. And so if you have a look at the executive team, you'll notice that it is a, um, it, other, than two, other than two people who came from outside, it is an equal representation of both organisations. And it was a very deliberate decision for us to do that because um, we wanted to make sure we started uh, on a level playing field uh, as an organisation. And with good diversity, Sonia. There was good diversity in there as well. I didn't <laughs> want to touch on that, but there is. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to have breakfast with a good friend and mentor, and she recommended a book to me called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Does anyone know why it's called 4,000 Weeks? I'm reading it. You are, yeah. It's the number of weeks in your career. So that's the number of weeks on average that we all get if we're lucky. So in wrapping up, Bern, when your four thousand that my God, okay. When your four thousand weeks are done, what do you want the impact of your career to have been? What is the legacy you would like to think you would leave behind? Wow, see I wish I had a drink of something other than water <laughs> sitting here. Um, it's interesting, so I've been so I've spent thirty two years in the superannuation industry in a variety of different roles. Um, and this role is, is by far, has been by far the most rewarding and the most impactful. Because I think, um, and I, I, in the darkest moments of going through this merger uh, with, the, with the Sun Super Board, I would say, Marina Rain Focus, that this, for all of us, should be a career highlight in us bringing together and creating a sustainable um, organisation for two plus million members. And that's, I suppose, when I think about it, I think about that. So, an aside, so um, I've got two sons. I've got a 22-year-old and a 19-year-old. And those of you who have children at or around that age will realise that they give you no time and they think you are. What the hell do you know? And when the... And my, my kids would see me having these merger discussions. I was in the study and they'd come in and interrupt me and all that sort of stuff they shouldn't have done. Um, but both of them said independently when the merger happened, well, Dad, we're really proud of you. And you think, well, okay, maybe I've done something right over the last 32 years. But that'd be my, that's my thing is the, it is the creating a organisation and it's not me who did it. There was a whole lot of people that I would just played a role in this but being able to reflect on the fact that um, we've created a sustainable uh, organisation that's going to do good for members uh, and help them in retirement, I think is a really pretty cool thing to do. And Bern, the cum- uh, Don, the culmination of your 4,000 weeks? I think I've got 400 weeks left. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> I just worked out, so I better, I better get doing some good stuff. Um, I, I, I think that having, um, with, with Australian Retirement Trust, is an enduring organisation. One, one, one of the things that we sort of have as a catch cry is an enduring force for good. Um, and, I, and I think if we can be like many others here, I, I really don't differentiate us in this one. Um, if we can be an enduring force for good for our members, if we can not do what lots of mutuals have done over many, many years and failed because they did one thing really badly, they didn't focus on members. They didn't really. They focused on the entity, the board, the executive, 
They focused on growth. They focused on something, but they didn't focus on members. If we can do that and absolutely excel at delivering them a retirement where they're confident, that will be good, but that won't make me happy. I think what would needs to go beyond that is that we need to really give back as a sector. We really do need to have proper impact investing on our environment, proper impact investing on our nation to solve problems with government, which has normally been shunned. Why would you solve problems with government to do things because you'll get conned somewhere and it won't be good for your members? Well, we just have to get beyond that and find ways in a society where all of us have enormous funds under management to invest. And what we're struggling with is finding great places to invest it. The governments have enormous debt leading out from where it is today. We must come together. We must come together with governments. We must come together, 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 solving things with each other and with our investment partners to do something transformational and to show what can be done so that our members have the right assets in retirement but the right life and the right optimism in retirement as well. I think that'd be great. Don Luke, Bernard Riley, Connexus Financial has been privileged to host you both today. Thank you for your time. Please join me in thanking Don and Ben. (laughs) 